Well, it is good to to be back with you, and I want to encourage you to find John's Gospel, John chapter 4, as we continue this this journey through uh, John's Gospel that you may believe is the the, the theme of John's Gospel, and we we pray is also the theme of our our study of it together. And as you're finding that, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all of your your prayers uh, on our behalf. We have certainly uh, felt them and uh, uh, covet the, the continuation of those prayers as we continue uh, the journey that the Lord has us on and uh, uh, just uh, so grateful for the many expressions of love and kindness of cards, emails, texts, meals, all of those things and it is it is good to be a part of the family of God and so thank you uh, so, so much uh, for that. I want to jump in uh, to teaching today with a statement that we've made uh, hopefully uh, several times and hopefully it's one that begins to get in grained in us, uh, and it, it is, is simply this, uh, that everybody, everybody is going to spend forever somewhere. Everybody that you and I encounter, everybody that we rub up against, everybody that we meet, whether it's a long-term relationship or, or, or a two-minute uh, interchange, uh, everybody is going to spend forever somewhere. A very real place called heaven in the presence of God or a very real place called hell. Everybody is going to spend forever somewhere. And because of that reality, everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. That's why John wrote this gospel. Because he came to that understanding, he came to that conviction that everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. And there was even intentionality in the way that he put the gospel together as he recorded specific events. He obviously didn't record everything that Jesus said and did, but he was intentional about those things that he included. And here in these early chapters, we find him showing Jesus encountering different people. There's Nicodemus in chapter 3 that... Uh, that Shannon uh, taught on just a couple of weeks ago. And now we come to chapter four, a, a Samaritan woman. And they could not be more different. Opposite people in opposite situations. Uh, male, female, Jewish, Samaritan, religious, immoral, upper part of society, a fringe of the society. And yet, including these two stories on the front end, John is saying to us, get it, understand it. Everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. Rich or poor, religious or secular, Republican, Democrat, Independent, African, Asian, American, everyone Everywhere needs Jesus. And you and I have been entrusted with the life and eternity transforming message of the good news about Jesus Christ. That if God has still left us on this planet, if we are still drawing breath, it is because God wants to use us as communicators of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And so in John chapter four, when Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman by the well, we learn some things about communicating the good news uh, that can help us even in our day and age. And so I wanna jump in and we're gonna move really, really fast. We're not gonna say everything that could be said. We're gonna cover, try to cover a lot of verses this morning. So have those Bibles ready and hang on, all right? So we're gonna start with just uh, uh, some, some, some quick background. Verses one and uh, through four. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, in in a quick reading, that last phrase may not mean a whole lot to us. But to uh, a Jewish audience uh, reading this, it would have meant a whole lot because Jews traveling between Judea, that southern kingdom centered around Jerusalem, and Galilee in the north usually avoided Samaria. They considered Samaria a land defiled and a people defiled. When the the Assyrians had come in centuries ago and captured the northern kingdoms of of Israel, they deported the people and they they brought in uh, people from other lands. And so over the centuries, there was this mixture. There was intermarriage. There was religious syncretism. And so so Jews considered Samaritans uh, certainly not part of the people of God. So much so uh, that when they traveled, uh, they would descend, instead of going straight up, which would have been the most direct route uh, to uh, Cana or the northern areas in Galilee, they would descend the mountain off of Jerusalem. They would cross over the Jordan River and go up the other side. And then when they got above Samaria, cross back over to go up. But Jesus, Jesus went straight through and on his way to Canaan came to a Samaritan town of Sychar. And there he encountered a woman at the well. And I want you to notice some things about Jesus' approach. The first thing that I want you to see is that he appeals to her heart. We're just gonna continue to follow the narrative as John laid it out for us. Verse five, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John kind of explains the question. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, I want you to notice. I notice, first of all, the barriers. The barriers that in this moment, Jesus is overcoming. He's going to a land that most Jews wouldn't travel through. He, he's, he's overcoming these cultural barriers. He's a, he's a man, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher talking to a woman that he, that he knows her background. Men did not speak to women in public in those settings in those days. He's a Jew speaking to a, a Samaritan. But I also I want you to notice something else. It said, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey. Now, I don't know about you, but very often <laughs> when I'm weary, 
the last thing I want to do is talk to somebody, right? <laughs> Listen, I've had it. I'm spent. I'm done. I have nothing else to give. Don't, talk. you know, you just pray, Lord, don't let the phone ring, right? <laughs> you, just, you just don't want to deal with it. What is it? that'll motivate you to move beyond cultural barriers? What is it that'll push you through tiredness and weariness and exhaustion? What is it that'll move you to enter in to uncomfortable situations and uncomfortable conversations? It, it is the love of Jesus Christ. What we see is his love and his compassion for this woman compel him to move across all of those barriers. But did you notice his approach? He asks her for a drink. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't start with, with, with the four spiritual laws or steps to peace with God. Or, uh, no, no. He asks her for a drink. And this is, this is significant because uh, it, it shocks her. You're talking to me, first of all, and then you're asking me for a drink. You don't have anything, as we'll see, to like get water from, or you don't have a cup. You don't have your water bottle handy with you, right? So you're going to have to drink from my stuff, which a Jewish man would not do. He asked her for a drink. See, to reopen lines of communication, somebody has to switch channels. And boy, is this a lesson we could learn in our country right now. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all locked into our, our echo chambers. We're all locked into our perspectives. And please understand, Jesus didn't compromise truth. Jesus did not uh, change uh, what he was going to call this woman to do and believe and how he was going to she was needed to respond but he changed his approach. He overcame cultural barriers. He pushed through his weariness. He asked her for a drink. He began to establish that relationship. For some of you, and this is not just a principle for sharing the gospel, it's a principle for having a conversation. If you continue to be locked in, somebody has to switch channels. Somebody needs to adjust their approach. Somebody might need to listen before they speak. So he appeals to her heart, but not only to her heart, but he continues to appeal to her head. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's, he's just wonderful in his communication here. He's moving from the known to the unknown. The conversation's not really about physical water. It's about spiritual thirst. It's about uh, living water, that which gives eternal life, as he'll uh, expand on in just a, a few moments. He begins moving from her felt need to the real need. And very often, if we try to share the gospel, the best place to start is where somebody is, right? What is their felt need? What, what is it that they're dealing with? What is it that they're struggling with? What are the questions that they're asking and wrestling with along the way? He moves from the known and begins to point her, her to the unknown. And he also uses a word picture, living water. Living water. There's power in word pictures, right? 
Hey, you know this, probably as you think about things in your life, sometimes we think in terms of a, of a picture. It's kind of like, or I picture it as. And, and word pictures can be a powerful way to communicate what we're thinking or feeling or truth along the way. And one of the things that he begins to do is he helped her to start asking questions. He, he helps her to begin to start asking questions. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying this to you, he would have given you living water. And she, she's wondering, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. She's starting to ask questions. She started to kind of wonder, I didn't start off this day with this, but now this guy's got me intrigued. You know, sometimes one of the greatest things we can do is just help somebody start asking questions. One writer put it this way. He said, I just kind of make it my goal to, to put a pebble in somebody's shoe. You know, sometimes we, we feel like we have to back up the gospel dump truck and dump it all out every time, right? The full load. But sometimes it's just about helping somebody to start asking questions. That's interesting. What do you believe about that? How did you come to that belief? Have you ever thought about another possibility? If everybody believed in what you believe, what would be the logical outcome of that? You just help people to begin to ask questions because very often in our society, sometimes we just throw out statements and sometimes people just, just mimic statements that they've heard and they, not, they haven't really thought about them. They've never really kind of examined their beliefs. And so he helps her to start asking questions. Who is this guy? What is this living water he's talking about? But he also refused to be drawn into an argument. You know, there might be even a hint of sarcasm in her response, like, who do you think you are? Are you greater than Jacob? And he could have stopped right there and said, well, as a matter of fact, yes, I am. <laughs> in fact, it's before Jacob was, I was, right? Yeah, he could, you know, he could have blown her away. But he's not there to win an argument. He's there to win a soul. He's there to, to transform a life. He appeals to her heart, to her head, but he also appeals to her desires. We continue with the conversation. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to her, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. He, he's appealing to her desires, to her, her thirst. Now, she's still kind of stuck on the material. And it reminds us that the material can always blind us to the spiritual, right? And we need to be aware of this even in our own lives. The material can blind us to the spiritual. Uh, most of us have been afflicted with affluence, right? Uh, I mean, we don't necessarily feel rich because uh, we compare ourselves to somebody that's got a whole lot more. Uh, but when you think about the scope of human history, when you think about even human beings living across the face of the planet today, most of us sitting here are afflicted with affluence, right? And if we're not careful, 
That which we own can begin to own us. That which we have can begin to require so much of our time and our energy and our effort to get, to accumulate, to maintain, to ensure, to repair, to all those things that the material can blind us to the spiritual. And while her physical thirst was legitimate, there was a greater thirst in her life. And that's what he wanted to appeal to. He wanted to appeal not just to her physical thirst, but the thirst for connection, the thirst for relationship, the thirst for the God who had created her. She had been trying to quench that thirst with a lot of relationships in a lot of different ways, but it had not fulfilled. And that's exactly what the prophet Jeremiah, kind of using that, that same word picture, if you will, had spoken about centuries earlier. He said, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water or can hold no water. And he's, Jeremiah, he just had his pulse on this. That we, we, we look to all these things to quench this thirst that only a living relationship with God can quench. And at this point, you gotta think this woman's head is spinning. Undoubtedly in her life, many men had charmed her. They had used her and they left her broken. But here she's encountering a man who loves her like she'd never been loved before who offered to quench the greatest thirst in her life with living water, a constant, fresh, eternal source of life. He's appealing to her heart, to her head, to her desires, but he also appeals to her conscience because he, she has to come to face to face with that. I have forsaken God. I have, have sought meaning and thirst quenching in cisterns that do not hold water. And so he appeals to her conscience, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one now you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Bang. I mean, in one sentence, Jesus brings into focus her entire life. All the ways she's been trying to quench that thirst that have left her broken. And used. But interesting, did you notice? You don't hear a sense of condemnation or shame or exploiting her sinfulness. He merely stated the truth and let it stand on its own. The man you're living with is not your husband, but the sixth temporary man in a long line of temporary men. And you know, sometimes, sometimes we feel like we have to be the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life, don't we? And so sometimes we feel like we, we have to like, not only state the truth, but say it loud and angry. And some of us even get a finger like going with it, right? Because we, are, we wanna like bring the conviction. Not my job. It's not yours either. I checked this morning. There's no vacancy in the Trinity, <laughs> right? 
<laughs> there's one on the Supreme Court, but there's not in the Trinity. Right? It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring the conviction. He stated the truth. Sometimes we just share the truth. We don't have to manipulate, condemn, shame. Just let the truth be communicated and let God's spirit do his work. It's interesting that despite that ugly reality, Jesus found a way to even commend her for at least the truthful part of her statement. <laughs> Did you notice there, he kind of said at the end, he said, what you have said is true. <laughs> he, he kind of affirmed what he could. Now here's the interesting thing. This woman who could have felt incredibly threatened, who could have just run away at that point in shame and guilt, she doesn't. She stays there. Because I think she had experienced something of Jesus. She didn't experience condemnation. She didn't experience harshness. She'd experienced love. That he had established a connection, a rapport, a relationship with her. And in that relationship, in that context of love, he could communicate truth. But notice not only his approach, but notice the woman's response. The woman's response. Her first initial was, response was, let's talk religion, right? Let's talk religion. Let's, let's get off this subject and on to another one there. So, so he, she says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain not in, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Her first initial response was, let's talk religion, right? The northern tribes had established a separate center of worship so people wouldn't go to Jerusalem centuries before, and that's just part of the ongoing kind of split between these people. And so she says, well, I begin to look around because I'm not sure I want to deal with this, and I see the mountain, and I say, let's talk religion. Let's talk about where you're supposed to worship. And that's not an uncommon response. Very often when we feel guilty, we'll look for something else to talk about. We'll look for somebody or something to attack and usually the nearest target. I mean, go back to the Garden of Eden, right? Adam, where are you? What have you done? Well, that woman, <laughs> Eve, what's going on? Well, that serpent, <laughs> and we do it today, right? We do it today. And it, she begins to kind of deflect. She begins to attack because it's more comfortable to discuss religion than it is to face our sins. And so there may be, even as you're in a conversation, maybe as you're sharing the gospel, and then somebody, somebody wants to all of a sudden shift. To, well, what about those people that hold up those awful signs and some of those things? Hey, 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 what about, what about some of those religious folks that, you know, that guy that was the head of the university and him and his wife are doing all this stuff? And yeah, by the way, what about the Crusades, right? You ever had those? Because it's more comfortable to talk about religion 
It's more comfortable to attack and deflect than it is to deal with our own sins. But Jesus doesn't go into a history lesson. He just answers her question in a way that brings her back to her need. Lady, <laughs> it's not about where. It's about who and how. It's about who you worship. And to worship him in spirit and in truth. Her second response was to let's talk later. Procrastination. And if you're engaging in a gospel conversation, sometimes somebody may respond like that. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. <laughs> Let's have this discussion later when he shows up, right? Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> it was almost like he's saying to her, hey, good news. <laughs> you don't have to wait any longer because I am here. I am here. And he's using that, that phrase, I am. And we'll see that over and over again in John's gospel. I am. It was an intentional choice of words. It points back to God's self-identification to Moses in Exodus. I am who I am. And what she would begin to understand and what the Jews and others who would begin to understand and be intimidated and threatened by oh, was that Jesus was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be God in the flesh. In the middle of this conversation, the disciples show up. Verse 27, just then, his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? Now, it's an interesting little aside, but it also teaches us something valuable about communication. See, the, the, the disciples demonstrate that one of the greatest barriers to good communication is the unasked question. The unasked question. And that's true whether it's a gospel conversation, whether it's a conversation in your family, your workplace, a social setting. Sometimes we have thoughts, we have ideas, we have motives that we're uh, ascribing to somebody else, but we don't ask the question. We don't ask the question. We don't get clarification. We make assumptions. And the unasked question often leads to miscommunication. The disciples had these questions, but nobody said them out loud. But there's a third part of her response, and that is that she goes and tells someone else. She goes and tells someone else. The disciples coming kind of gave a break, and so she takes it in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to the town and were coming to him. Now, I, all that we know at this point is this woman forgot about her original task. 
She left her a water container and what she was getting water out of the well with and all those things, and she runs back to town to confer with people there. And maybe she's actually looking people in the eye that she doesn't even normally look into the eye. And one of the first things she does, and this is a great gospel communication thing, she appeals to their curiosity. She appeals to their curiosity. Hey, hey, come and meet a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Now, I sometimes joke when I'm teaching this is because based on this woman's reputation, that, that was probably some folks said, that would be interesting. <laughs> that, might, that might be worth a trip out to the well here, right? I mean, she appeals to their curiosity. Could this be? Could this be the Christ? Remember, helping people to ask questions is hugely important. Could this be? And then she gives them an opportunity. Gives them an opportunity. Come here for yourself. Just come and see. Check it out. He's out by the well. Now, there's some closing lessons there as we kind of put all these uh, together. The first is Jesus goes on to talk to the disciples about spiritual food. Spiritual food, which he defines as doing God's will. Verse 31, meanwhile, the woman's back in town. Meanwhile, the disciples were, were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. They've gone to get food, they've brought it back, and now they're saying, hey, eat. And he says, I have food to eat you don't know about. And maybe they're thinking at that point, did DoorDash come out here? Grubhub? I mean, what's up? How did he do that, right? He said, no, no. My food, which brings the deepest satisfaction to my life, is not just another meal, but is doing the will of the Father. That doing God's will satisfies my soul. Obeying the word of God is more important and more satisfying than fulfilling any physical need. Now, we'll flip that phrase around for just a moment. There are some of us that we're pursuing things and we're filling up our calendars with things and we're busy and we're doing all of these things and the world kind of has told us, you need to do this and you need to get this and you need to achieve this. And sometimes when we're quiet enough, maybe it's when we lay our heads down on the pillow at night and we can't fall asleep. It is in those moments that we begin to come face to face with, I've been busy and I've been productive, I think, and I've been collecting all all the things the world tells me I'm supposed to collect, but I'm not satisfied. I'm doing church, but I'm not satisfied. And it may very well be that that dissatisfaction is a signal. It's a signal that as busy as I am, I am operating outside of the will of God. For doing God's will satisfies my soul. Walking in his ways satisfies my soul. And that doesn't mean it's always easy or comfortable. 
but it is soul satisfying because it quenches a thirst with living water. Dissatisfaction may be a signal. The first lesson is spiritual food is doing God's will. The second lesson, opportunities, Jesus said, are all around us. They are all around us. Verse 35, do you not say uh, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered in to their labor. Again, I think Jesus is using some wonderful word pictures. See, the disciples had gone to town to get food. The woman has gone to town to get people and point them to Jesus. And it could be, as you even read that next verse, that the the Samaritans are starting to, to come toward him. It could be that even as they're coming, Jesus says, says, let me give you this word picture, that the fields are widened to the harvest. God is at work in people's life all around you, and you get to enter into that labor. You get to be a part of that. Sometimes you sow, but sometimes you reap where other people have, have sown and labored all along the way and he's trying to tell us something. Beware, beware, beware of getting so caught up in the necessities of life that you miss out on the priorities of life. We can check all the boxes and do all the things that somebody told us to do. And they're good things, important things, even necessary things. But just be aware that you and I can get so caught up in the necessities of life that we miss out on the priorities. We miss out on the priorities. See, the interlude between Jesus' discussion with the woman and the rest of the town, this time with the disciples, allows us to see back in verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because there was a woman whose life needed to be touched, who was going to be catalytic in a whole community coming and being encountering Jesus Christ. But there were also some disciples that early on in their journey with Jesus needed to come face to face with the fact that everybody everywhere needs Jesus and that the fields are right into the harvest and that God is at work and you and I are called to enter into that labor. He had to go through Samaria, not just for a woman, not just for a town, but also for what he wanted to do in the life of the disciples. And then as the people begin to show up, we see this interesting pattern. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Some quick thoughts. People are attracted by what you say and what you are. That there was something about the presence of Jesus and the words of Jesus that worked in this woman's life. 
There was something about this woman that they could see, obviously something was different, and I don't even know if she fully understood it to that point, but as she came into town, there was something different about her, and her words were intriguing enough to begin to ask people to ask some questions, and they come, and they begin to hear the words of Jesus themselves, and one of the greatest things that you and I can do sometimes, maybe we share our story, and sometimes we feel intimidated. I don't know all the answers. I haven't had enough training. This woman had no training. She didn't have hardly any answers, but she had just kind of encountered Jesus, and we can begin there, and then sometimes we can just help point somebody, give them an opportunity to hear the words of Jesus for themselves. It's amazing just to ask somebody sometime, have you ever examined the primary documents yourself? I mean, you say the Bible's full of all these holes. Have you read it? Would you be, I'd be willing to do that with you. Or to get them in an environment where they can hear the word of God taught or proclaimed. They hear the words of Jesus themselves and they come to know, not just know about, but know personally and experientially Jesus Christ as Savior. While the woman's testimony brought them to hear Christ, it was from their own encounter with the word that caused them to trust Jesus as Savior. Why did John take so much time out of the gospel, 42 verses to write about this encounter with this woman that most folks would have thought was pretty insignificant person in the world because John knew that everybody is gonna spend forever somewhere and that everybody, everyone, everywhere needs Jesus and that you and I have been entrusted with a life eternity transforming message of the good news about Jesus Christ. Tim Keller puts it this way, when the gospel comes home, not religion, but when our life is truly gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, humbling and affirming you, it turns every believer into a natural evangelist. We begin to, to speak, we begin to live out of our new life in Jesus Christ. He goes on, the gospel makes us neither self-confident nor self-disdaining but both bold and humble at once. So the gospel humbles me before anyone, telling me I am a sinner saved only by grace, but it also emboldens me before anyone, telling me I am loved and honored by the only eyes in the universe that really count. So the gospel gives a boldness and a humility that do not eat each other up, but can increase together. The gospel brings a gentle boldness. I like that. Some of us think if I'm gonna be an evangelist, I've gotta be rude. I gotta be arrogant. I gotta be obnoxious. Those people don't understand the gospel because the gospel humbles as it emboldens. We are called to a gentle boldness. At 12 years old, Malachi Russell had a list of 17 people, one person for each month that he was expected to live. 
they were his ones. During his battle with cancer, Malachi had heard about the Who's Your One movement, the the movement to challenge Christians to pray for and share the gospel with one person in their circle of influence. And if you've been here for a while, you you know we have challenged one another. Many of you uh, brought and laid the names of of your one on this altar, and, and we've been encouraging one another. Are you praying for your one? Have you had an opportunity to have a conversation with your one? He 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 began to take that challenge very, very personally. And I want you to hear just a little bit of his story. Check out this video. Well, we named him Malachi after the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. Um, And his name means my messenger. He never met a stranger so inquisitive, would talk to anybody and that was him from day one. I mean, that, that's never changed. Even until he took his last breath, he was always that way. He, Malachi loved sports, and he loved soccer. And at night, he started to complain that, he's like, Dad, my leg hurts. So I went to a friend who you know has a clinic here, and they got finished, and the doctor came to the door, and he just, you know, he knocked, and it's that moment you don't want as a parent where he's like, hey, I need you to come talk to me. So I went down to the office and sat down, and he he just looked at me and he said, there's two to three small masses in the base of his spine. We need you to uh, take him to Atlanta today. But that Saturday morning, they, they had about, was about two and a half, almost three hour surgery, and he just said, like, the likelihood of this being cancer is pretty high. So. That was a very hard moment. I mean, not to, just say it as it is, but the average lifespan was 17 months. He was in the hospital for 45 days, and he just immediately, when you go back and you start looking at kind of some of the stuff that he wrote down, Malachi could have just said, like, I'm done. February 2nd, 2019, I said, just let me die. That's what I said. There's no point in laying in a bed doing nothing. My dad said, I'm alive probably today still because I have a story even at age 12. I have a testimony. As parents, you can encourage your kids to do something. But in that situation, he had to make a decision. And he chose how he was going to walk it out. The Lord has given me so many chances to share the gospel, and I'm going to take every chance I can. The world needs Jesus. I want to step my game up because this thing, cancer, it can kill me, so I need to tell as many people as I can. Every day, Monday through Friday, when we would go for radiation, he would have to be transported in an ambulance. And so every day we had two new people that we spent about four hours with. And Malachi shared the gospel every day to those new people. I mean, he would lay in the back of that, on that stretcher, that amulet. So where are you from and what do you do? But Malachi was just so bold. And I think that was kind of one of the gifts of cancer was that it really brought an awareness of life and death. I mean, you get a cancer diagnosis and it's, what do you have to lose? I mean, you know, like really, what, I mean, what do you have to lose? 
the body of believers at our church is amazing. We rolled out the Who's Your One initiative, and that was one of the things that fueled that list. He just literally went through the list of people that he knew that needed Jesus, and I, I'm just going to write them down. I'm going to fight for them. And gosh, for him, he it's, it just took it seriously because he he saw the finish line in front of him. The end of August, we went uh, for a scan, and it had spread to his brain. And so our prayers shifted from, Lord, sustain him, you know, to cheering him on to the finish line. And so when he, when he took his last breath, I just remember thinking, like right now, he's with Christ. Yeah, we, we hung on to that passage of in the garden where he's like, take this cup, please take this cup. Um, but if it's your will. And so we just, we just drank of whatever the Lord gave us and trusted that the end would be for his glory. Malachi's favorite verse was engraved on his tombstone. I don't know if you saw it. John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then underneath that scripture passage was that emphatic message. Did you see it on the tombstone? Testify. Testify. It's perhaps the most succinct way that the Russells could have summarized their son's life. Why does this matter? Because everybody is going to spend forever somewhere. And everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. And if you are a follower of Christ, you and I have been entrusted with the life and eternity transforming message of Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him together, please. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that somebody loved us enough to tell us about Jesus. Thank you, Father, that somebody has prayed for us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Thank you for coming and doing for us what we could have never done for ourselves in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for, for leaving us here on purpose, that it's not an accident that we're alive in the crazy year of 2020. It's not an accident that we live where we live and work where we work and travel in the circles that we travel in. And Father, I pray that, that you might birth a, a new heart a new love, a new compassion in the lives of all of us who name the name of Jesus Christ, Father, that, that we would live every day aware that everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. And we don't have to have all the answers. We just have to point them to the one who does. Father, we ask that you move in us so that you can move through us in Christ Jesus' name we do pray, amen.